class. Please be quiet. Any special message for all the kids watching at home? Stay out of trouble. Welcome to the RPG Academy Network presents Film Studies. Welcome, classroom. I am Kalum. Yes, that's me. Uh, my voice is a bit different than usual because I'm recovering from a terrible illness which went to my tonsils. But tonight, I will be your teacher of foreign cinema. Oh, am I? Because once again, I'm selling out with a proper American blockbuster. We're going to discuss A Night's Tale from 2001, directed by Brian Elgeland. But let's take attendance and see who is joining us today. James, could you introduce yourself and uh, and also let us know what type of teacher would you be? All right. I am James D'Amato. Uh, you might recognize me from my work over on the One Shot Podcast Network, where I host One Shot and Campaign Skyjacks, or from my book series, The Ultimate RPG Guides, published by Adams Media, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. You can find me over at OneShotPodcast.com. That's where all my shows are. Or uh, the best place to talk to me is on Twitter, at OneShotRPG. And as for what kind of teacher I would be, you know, probably one that would spend a lot of time, you know, maybe joking around. I don't think I would have a super organized lesson plan. And mostly, I think I'd be like a, a history or, or literature teacher of some kind that's uh, trying to tell you compelling stories to spark your interest <laughs> more than any other sort of organized instruction. To make up for their own lack of organization. Yeah, exactly. Scott, what about you? Hi, I'm Scott Maltas. I've written various role-playing games. Recently, Romance of the Perilous Land with Osprey Games and other things like Quill, English Eerie, In Darkest Warrens, Bits and Bats everywhere. I do not have an amazing kind of podcast demeanor like James and yourself, so I'm going to awkwardly bumble through this one. But yeah, you can get me on trollishdelver.com. That's uh, my blog that's been going. Actually, I think this week it's been going for 12 years. Oh, Congratulations. Thank you. I'm going to have a birthday party by myself. <laughs> and then then that spawned the Trollish Delver imprint that I published from. And in terms of teacher, I think I'd be an English teacher, but uh, I think like James, I would probably be quite laid back, maybe try and be quite cool, but maybe put too much effort into it <laughs> and lose all the respect <laughs> from my class and all control and go home in tears. Amazing. All traditional content warning. There's a bit of violence and blood in uh, A Night Still, but beyond that, uh, it's kind of PG-13. Am I missing anything that I should warn people about in that movie? I think apart from some light sexual content and a little bit of blood, you know, this is a sports movie. So generally, a lot of the, the stuff that I think normally triggers people is is not really the subject matter they're looking at. There's some nudity. There's some important nudity. We'll come back to it. 
but not the type you expect. Yes, yes. And not shower room nudity like you usually <laughs> see in sports movie. Mm-hmm. And as for ourselves tonight, I think we will keep the language down. We'll remain uh, appropriate for general audience. But uh, as always, listeners' discretion is advice. Scott, speaking of nudity, what is your one-sentence review tagline for this movie and your five stars rating? Yeah, I like the introduction of Scott, speaking of nudity. (laughs) That's always a good way to choose. But yeah, my tagline is... More like Paul Buttony, because <laughs> of the, yeah, yeah, because because he's well, we'll get onto it, I guess. The vision mm-hmm. of nakedness that this the movie vi- has. Yeah, I was trying to think of some kind of vision. He's a, he's a vision, but yeah, he's uh, he's quite nude in this one, and I've given it a three out of five. Not too great, but not completely unwatchable. I keep taking on guests for this show based on their taste, and um, I end up being the one rating things the higher. I'm very surprised. I was mad at Grandawid last time because I rated Fast and Furious higher than he did. But, James, what about you? Will you end my curse? What's your rating and your one-sentence review? One-sentence review, I will say this is the second best sports movie of all time. Or at least my second favorite sports movie. And I... Give it a solid four, maybe four and a half out of five. Wow. Great. Out of curiosity, what's your favorite sports movie then? The best sports movie is Speed Racer, directed by the Wachowski siblings. Oh, okay. Interesting. I need to catch that one. I have not watched it. It was sort of controversial. It is so much better than it has any right to be. (laughs) Okay. I will check it out and maybe we'll have an opportunity to discuss it in a future episode. But back to A Night's Tale, my own one-sentence review is, he's just a boy, jousting in front of a girl, asking her to love him. And my rating is 3.5. I'm trying to calm down on the rating, but I'm still higher than Scott, so I guess... Uh, I mean, I thought the movie was very enjoyable, but uh, there's a lot of competition on film studies. You know, I'm trying to keep things, you know, sort of balanced, that they make sense. They don't, but... Uh, regardless. So, for people who have not seen the movie, spoiler alert, going forward, we're going to spoil the movie completely, starting with our traditional summary of the movie, a little plot hypnosis. Time to read some exposition text. It is the Middle Ages. Jousting is the popular sport, both among the nobles and commoners. However, the later only get to watch. They cannot compete. That's kind of the whole idea of this movie, actually. You know, Justin, that thing with the horse riders and lances running into each other in an arena? Our heroes are William Thatcher, <coughs> God, I hate that name, <coughs> Roland, and what? They are played by Heath Ledger, Mark Eddy, and Alan Tudyk. Anyway, today, jousting is cancelled for them. The three are just commoners acting as squires for Sir Hector, who just passed away before the end of a tournament. He's dead. What do you mean dead? The spark of his life is smothered in shite. But wait, there is just one more pass to win the tournament. Strip his armour. I'm riding in his place. William decides to wear Sir Hector's armour 
to impersonate him. If the nobles find out who you are, they'll be the devil to pay. And pray that they don't. It works. And they take the prize. Afterwards, William convinces his companions to continue the masquerade. God love you, William. <laughs> I know, I know. No one else will. <laughs> he is no noble, but he could still be a justing champion if given a chance. And Sue's a training montage. You see how dangerous it is? Later, they meet Geoffrey Saucer on the road, Morning. played by Paul Bettany and Morning. Stark Naked. Oh, sir. This young destitute minstrel Clothe me. provides them with Shoot a forged patent of nobility. Assuming the name Sir Ulrich von Liechtenstein from Gelderland, May I present my Lord Ulrich? William successfully participates in several tournaments. Along the ride, lol, the group is joined by Kate, a talented female blacksmith. Yes, queen! On the list, that's what the Justing Arena is called, William also finds a lover and a rival. Would you speak to me? Ah, oh, to speak. Jocelyn, played by Shannon Sussman, is a witty noblewoman with a flashing wardrobe, which implies a progressive spirit, I guess. Count Adhemar of Anjou, played by Rufus Sewell, My lady, may I present Count Adhemar? is a evil man who looks evil. Lady, He's evil. I will win this tournament for you. And he doesn't like William. How stylish of you to joust in an antique. Adhemar is evil and says evil things all the time. Some of these poor country knights, little better than peasants. After beating our hero, Adhemar tells William, you have been weighted, you have been, weighed, you have been, measured, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. Been found wanting. Despite being evil, Adamar is not an idiot. For instance, at another tournament, when faced on the lists with a mysterious opponent, Adamar forfeits. Because he knows that this is in fact Edward, the Black Prince, played by James Purfoy. It's the future king of England, and no one wants to joust against him. But William, aka Ulrich, can tell that Edward is sad about people not jousting against him. He's in disguise like me, so he can compete. So William, aka Ulrich, jousts against Edward. That makes Edward happy. Good luck with the tournament. Adamar is called to war. In his absence, William wins all the tournaments. In Paris, Jocelyn asks William, aka Ulrich, to lose fights to prove his love. Jocelyn told me I should lose to prove my love. So he takes several beatings. I'm gonna lose everything! Before the end of the tournament, Jocelyn then asked William, aka Ulrich, to win. My lady sends this message. If you love her, you will not lose another match. So he wins all the remaining jousts. Huzzah! William, aka Ulrich, has won the tournament. The same evening, Jocelyn shows up at his tent. Huzzah! William, aka Ulrich, has won her heart and but him well, my lady. You know. But him well. The group now travels to London for the world championship. The London crowd is cheering him. Ooh, Rick, ooh, Rick. Time for a flashback. We see a moving scene from William's past. He's a real knight, William. When his father gave away a little wee will to Sir Hector. Watch and learn all you can. Back to the present. I mean, the not so quite present, the, the, the Middle Age, right? Adult William finds his father no blind 
living alone in a ramshackle home. Sometimes we see him sitting out the window, but no one knows why. The old Thatcher, God, I hate that name, is very happy that his son managed to change his destiny. Has he found his way home? Yes. But Adamar finds out about all of this, and it is reported that the real Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein from Gelderland <laughs> is dead. William is arrested and placed in the pillory. The London crowd is not cheering anymore. Boo, boo, boo. <laughs> His friends Roland, Watt, Jeff and Kate won't be able to protect him from the mob. But wait, here comes Prince Edward. Release him. Respect bro for inspiring such good men. Uh, Kate is standing just here, thanks. I am making you a noble. And as such is beyond contestation. William is freed in time to face Adamar at the tournament. But Adamar cheats, severely wounding William. William wins anyway, in front of his blind father sitting alongside Jocelyn. Adamar lying in shock as a vision of William's entourage telling him, you have been you have weighed, been weighed. You, have been you, measured, have been you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. Have been found wanting. Chaucer remarks that he should write about everything that happened. The end. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> the entire film, yeah. Ah, it's good. <laughs> Beyond this summary, the, what it does not tell us is what you like the most and dislike about this movie. The things that really call out to me, first of all, is the sort of reverent and complex stunts that we're seeing surrounding jousting. You know, jousting is not a thing that is typically depicted on screen. This is probably the only movie that I can think of where it's a major plot point and a major thing that they're trying to investigate on the screen. And the work that went into the special effects, sound design, uh, stunts, and the way they shot these scenes where the jousting happened, it's just really compelling. You know, they very quickly and efficiently lie out, you know, why this sport is exciting and interesting. And, you know, they are shooting jousting the way a lot of other movies would shoot sports that everybody recognizes and would have an instant emotional connection to. I, I think it's a really impressive thing. The like ideas that they came up with to make it work on screen were really compelling and, and just fun to watch. Uh, the other thing I, I will admit is I love Jocelyn's costuming. <laughs> One of the things that we love most in my household about Star Wars is the costuming for Padme Amidala, the character like in the prequel trilogies to Star Wars. Padme famously does not wear the same outfit scene to scene. Every single scene she's in, she has a brand new outfit. The same is true for Jocelyn. And they are anachronistic, wildly inventive, uh, her hair, her makeup. It's all like these wild runway looks um, that, you know, certainly are not accurate to the time period, but are really kind of evocative of the things that her character is supposed to represent and, you know, create a very fun atmosphere for the movie at large. You know, there are a lot of things that I love about it, but those two things really definitely stand out to me. Yeah, that would be actually quite cool. I don't recall ever seeing anyone cosplay those costumes, but it would be so cool to see uh, at a convention those sort of, you know, I don't know, some of them, they look like Paris Fashion Week, like mm -hmm. but like in the 50s, the, the there's this 
ensemble she's wearing at some point with like a white hat. Yeah. Which is very light and see-through. Uh, yeah, a lot of very cool t- things she's wearing. The uh, scene where they hold uh, the ball and, and have the dance, like her look is very Midsummer Night's Dream. Like there's something very fey about not only the way that she's dressing, but the makeup that they've picked for her, the way they've done her hair. It's just really cool. The spaces where this movie, I think what some of the most prevalent criticism for this movie is that it is anachronistic. It is not a faithful representation really of the time periods that they're grappling with. And they are multiple time periods uh, that are kind of represented in this movie. Uh, it, it's definitely not representative of like some of the cultures around it. Um, and even jousting itself could be done a better turn in terms of accuracy. But the way it's using that anachronism, using that larger than life kind of lens to look at this sport is all so fun. So everywhere that they choose to bend or break the rules of time, I think results in if you're willing to let go of the fact that they're breaking those rules, just a ton of fun to look at. It reminds me a bit of Moulin Rouge, because I remember uh, Baz Luhrmann saying about Moulin Rouge that, like the scene when they enter Moulin Rouge, it's not historically accurate visually, but it's accurate that that's how people would feel Mm. entering the Moulin Rouge at the time. You know, this energy and contemporary music that people entering Moulin Rouge would know about. So the details are not accurate, but the vibe is sort of is. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that's a really good point. Because I think if you were going historically accurate, it would be fairly drab. And you wouldn't have that energy the filmmakers wanted to bring into the film, which is to make it into almost a modern day sports film that happens to be set in the 14th century. I'll push back against that a tiny bit and say uh, I did watch this with a dear friend who is also a tabletop role-playing game luminary uh, Alex Roberts who did not like this movie as much as I did and it's because apparently you could have gone way harder in terms of the historical response to jousting Mm. there are multiple times that the Catholic Church tried to ban jousting because it would almost always lead to riots. People would get so excited about the sport and the competition that it would be chaos, like leveling cities almost. So you could get some wild frothing at the mouth stuff, but (laughs) certainly I think what they did makes this easiest to A, tell stories in, and B, make a modern audience appreciate and understand. I want to see that film now. Yeah, I know. I want to see pure drunken riots. When Alex told me that, <laughs> destroying I was like, oh man, that movie does need to exist. <laughs> the Middle Ages was a... The past in general is a wild time. <laughs> it's much wilder than the, than we, we imagine. The costumes and the set design were your your favorite things, also, Scott. Yeah, so I had these down as my as kind of my favorite things. Also, the horses were great, mm-hmm. great, great training. I think that obviously comes with the uh, you know you, as James said, you're doing jousting as a core element of your film, and that requires some really, I imagine, pretty hardcore training with your horses. So I thought, yeah, 
thumbs up to the horse actors. And I think Paul Bettany kind of stole the show for me as uh, oh, yeah. our friend Jeff. Maybe it's appropriate that I <laughs> I have no voice tonight to record this because apparently Paul Bettany got a severe case of laryngitis mm-hmm. after shooting this movie because he's been yelling so much during the, the shooting. I've been reading a bit of, of trivia and something, if it's true, I find absolutely amazing. I don't know if you remember the first scene when Bettany Jeff introduces Ulrich von Liechtenstein. He's like, Ulrich von Liechtenstein, and the audience does not react. Mm-hmm. And it's his other friend, Roland, who starts clapping and say, yeah, and then the audience reacts. So allegedly that happened for real during the shoot because the extra, it was shot in Czechoslovakia. So the crowd, the extra, did not get the Ulrich von Lynchen time as their cue for them to go wild. But they did go wild when when the other actor said, yeah, and started clapping his hand. Yeah. <laughs> and the director and the team decided <laughs> to keep that take, which I find absolutely hilarious. That is definitely 100% accurate. One of the things that I think is very fun about this movie is the amount of stuff that is kept based on individual choices the actors are making. And Paul Bettany is someone who you know, really did go whole hog on his performance in this one. He is not phoning it in at all. He made, you know, several like kind of improvisational choices that they ended up keeping in the final bit of the movie, which, you know, I think is one of the things that makes it so much fun and so strong. Yeah, I did not even realize because I heard of the Canterbury Tales, but those are not that famous on the continent in France and Belgium. Oh, really? So I did not even realize that he was based on a historical figure. Mm -hmm. The other like Canterbury Tales, like Easter egg you get in this is they have Simon the Sumner and, uh, Ooh, the dang, I'm not, I'm going to forget the name of the other one, but those are two characters from the Canterbury Tales who Chaucer originally gets in gambling trouble. We learned that that's the reason that Chaucer was naked when we met him on the road and as soon as they like get him dressed up, bring him into town, he gambles everything away again. And so he meets these two characters who in the Canterbury Tales are just relentless evil villains. <laughs> and he has this great little interaction with them after uh, Will and the others come and save him. He tells them that he will eviscerate them in fiction, that he was naked for a day and that they will be naked for eternity. <laughs> you know, the Canterbury Tales, not my favorite collection of historical fiction. Um, and certainly Chaucer's A Knight's Tale is not nearly as interesting as this A Knight's Tale. But boy, howdy, did they have some fun with uh, that little historical note. That's so cool. Peter the Pardoner. It's Simon the Sumner and Peter Peter the Parker. Uh, yeah, I, I will eviscerate you in fiction. He's, I've written it down here. That was my favorite line in the film. That was fantastic. Coming back on the horse overall, it's a movie that there's so much stunt work and there's so much craft in the performance of those stunts. I love also little details like the lens for them to look impressive when they break. They were hollowed out and there are ships of balsa wood in them, but also dried linguinis in there yes <laughs> so when they break yeah what they ran into is they would do a lot of the jousting stunts in slow motion because you know they can do a couple passes where 
they do hit it full force. But even if you're using balsa wood, like that can hurt a stunt performer. So they did a lot of this like slow motion filming to really stretch out and make the most of these hits that they were filming. And they found with the first couple breaks that they did, it just didn't really look impressive. And the director was like, I need these lances to explode on screen. It like stuff needs to go everywhere. So they eventually figured out we can just stuff these hollow lances full of pasta <laughs> and that'll do it. That's so good. <laughs> Apparently, though, so the first scene, the first jobs you see as part of the introduction when you have this text sort of giving you the context was a, a rehearsal of some kind which happened between the stuntman for Heath Ledger, who got severely hurt during that rehearsal, and they decided to keep the whole sequence and use that as the introduction. So, yeah, the action, it's still very real and very dangerous action, which was shot and is shown to you. So it's very, very impressive, I find. Yeah, I mean, especially when you think of they were inventing the cinema craft for this type of action to be filmed. Like... There aren't no foot tracks that you can follow. Like if you watch, you know, movies where there's a lot of sword play, they are probably doing sword forms that have been used on film and in theater for over a hundred years. But in in this film with jousting, it's just not a thing that gets filmed. So they had to figure out how to make it look impressive, how to make it sound impressive. One of the cool things about this movie is when the lances hit each other in the sound design, they're actually using the slowed down sound of a howitzer to help create that effect of like, you know, you hear splitting wood or whatever. That That's actually a howitzer, you know, moving, which I just think is so cool. Like all the very specific attention to detail that went into making those hits feel very powerful and, and hit with such high energy and be such an exciting thing, even if everyone watching has very little context for, you know, getting on board with jousting. Yeah, it works very well. It reminds me, uh, I think I brought that up uh, in our last episode, but when I watched a movie called Rush, which is about Formula One, mm -hmm. and I'm really not into Formula One, but the cinematography and the storytelling worked so well that I was still into it. And here is the same thing. And they come up with very interesting little details like when they sign up for the contest, they have to decide which things they're going to do. And they, they hit a little icon on a shield to decide, okay, we're going to do the sword fencing, we're going to do the lens thing. There's a lot of little details like the scoring with the flags and so on, which are, are very visual and works very well to make it feel like it's, it's real, it exists. And yeah, also the crowd being wild and painted in ways which are inspired by a uh, contemporary sports events. All of that is really, really cool. Yeah. But beyond that, my own thing I preferred was, I think it really comes across that I think the team really enjoyed themselves shooting that movie. There's a real chemistry between all the actors, and I just really love that. Yeah, it feels like there's a lot of ad-libbing. And uh, on one hand, everything is probably very precise in the way... All the action was shot, but everything in between seems like, yeah, there, there was room for improv and uh, for interactions between uh, everyone involved. 
Absolutely. I felt like there was there was a very long leash for all the performers in this film, and I, I think it led to some really great moments. You know, th- this movie isn't a movie that I will say is like a must-watch piece of art. What what this movie is is an extremely fun movie, and it's you know really comes through from the areas where people worked hard and and, and tried to make something interesting and had fun doing it. You know, like it was not super well received critically, but I think if you are not looking at it with the same measure you use for like Oscar nominee movies and instead you look at like a fun movie doing something interesting and kind of different, I think it succeeds pretty handily. And that's because of the passion of the people involved when making it. Yeah, and even though I didn't really give it as, as high a score as as you two, I think that you know you do have to commend it for being different. And there are some really nice shots. I think the cinematography when I think after when William's trying to win Jocelyn back, and it's that wide shot. It's on a dolly, and it's just moving just down that hall, kind of down that that two dimensional plane. I think that was a really nice shot, and that really stood out to me in terms of that conversation, how that was framed. Mm-hmm. So I think it's one of those films where, yeah, maybe they they weren't afraid to just take some chances and think, okay, well, we know what kind of film we're making <laughs> generally, but let's maybe do something a little bit different, you know, where other filmmakers might have gone quite stock with it. It's funny because at the same time, I mean, I get it, but I don't know why people going in as critics to this movie would take it so... Sp- I, I, I want to quote another movie from Heath Ledger and ask, why so serious? <laughs> Are you comparing it that too? I mean, I don't think... Ivano, Ivano, I don't think it was something that historically accurate. You know, all the Robin Hood movies... Uh, even more recent ones. I mean, what's the competition? First night with Richard Gere and <laughs> Sean Connery. So why suddenly? I mean, yeah, it's true. They lean into it. Personally, I thought that the introduction, uh, we were staring at each other so we, with my wife, with the uh, we will rock you thing because we thought the joke was running a bit long, especially since you know the joke from the trailer. Also, I still remembered it from the trailer back then. But uh, yeah, they lean into the, you know, bringing that energy in a historical setting. But yeah, it's what you got, what is written on the, on the box. You, you don't go in. I mean, I don't see why people would go in and then expect. I don't know, really. I guess Gladiator, but it came out later. Historically accurate movies is not really a, a genre which is it, that popular, I, or is it? Or at least this movie is not marketed like that. I don't know what it is, but like most people that I speak to about this movie who didn't like this movie, it usually breaks down to the anachronism and the way the film uses that anachronism. I do think it bothers people in some way. I, one of the interesting points, if you are like me and have watched this movie, many, many times and watch the director's commentary for this movie at least once. You know that the director, uh, Brian Helgland, mentioned that, you know, in making this movie, even if they were to do a very traditional orchestral score for the film, 
you know, foregoing uh, the, the main points of anachronism, which is the music that I, I think, you know, especially like We Will Rock You, Golden Years, and The Boys Are Back in Town. Like, I, I think those moments hit the hardest. He mentions that an orchestral score would also be anachronistic for this film because yeah. orchestras, yeah. Uh, as we know them, didn't really exist <laughs> until much later. This movie takes place in the 1300s. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. So it is, I, I think it is a weird criticism, but it's one that clearly sticks in the craw of a lot of people who, who have a problem with this film. You know, this movie does have flaws. I, I won't deny that, but I can't really get behind the anachronisms being the flaws. So speaking about flaws, what was your the point which you liked the least about the movie? Yeah, so for me, a few things. So I think structurally, there was something a bit off. And I think that's because it starts very quickly in him training to be a knight. And we get that kind of the kind of the Rocky montage within about 15 minutes. Whereas it felt like we, we, we sort of came in partway through a film. While we have flashbacks throughout certain points in the film, mm. I think the film could have benefited from having maybe a bit more of a setup as to why we care about William and why we care about his entourage. For me, that wasn't necessarily there. I feel while the anachronism is absolutely fine, you know, that as I say, the film was doing its thing. That it's specifically made in that way. I did find the tones they'd just be a bit off, I think. Sometimes I think maybe you mentioned the boys are back in town and we've just had that a fairly emotional kind of flashback that almost immediately goes into the boys are back in town and there was something jarring there for me and that might just be me but there's maybe some uses of music that didn't quite land huh. for me. Yeah, there were some things like that. I don't know, especially with Ademar, you see him at war and... You know, it's well shot, the photography is very good, but it's almost too dark and too grim. And then you come back to the colorful movie. There's also in terms of, not sure if it's tone or storytelling, but weirdly, I remembered another plot to the movie. I don't think it existed, but I guess my, my brain filled some gaps. In my mind, it was a bit more about... Because there's some of that, but they don't actually do anything with it. There's some of, oh yeah, we're the commoners and they're the nobles and that's bad because they don't let us have a destiny and so on. Yeah. But actually, they lay that, but they don't do anything with it. So in the way I remember the movie, I in my memory, I told the Londoners, I thought that Jeff would make a big speech and the Londoners would be on the verge, maybe not revolution, but be like, yeah, yeah, we're on the side of William because he's one of us. And then the king would show up and sort of solve the situation because he likes William, but also it's his interest that things don't go wild. But it actually doesn't like that. It's funny that you mentioned that there is a deleted scene where Chaucer makes a speech while William is in the stocks. I think they cut that really like, for me, like the areas in which this film is like trying to talk about the politics of a common born person versus a, a noble person, you know, it's 
all framing itself through competition and you know will's story is really just proving the nobility of knighthood by uh quote-unquote behaving like a knight in the most important ways which is as the prince lays out like tilting when he should retreat and you know inspiring uh the people around him to love him you know you can do what you will with that I do think as a competition movie, like it's mostly kind of about the competition, but I will say as somebody who has watched this movie, you know, over a dozen times, there are 212 minutes in this movie and Hmm. it does need more time or some reconfiguring uh, for certain things in my mind. Yeah. One of the characters dealt the biggest disservice, I think is Kate. The Ferris, the the blacksmith. Yeah. She is a part of the party. She clearly has a personality, but she gets no business, really. Like, she makes the armor. She agrees to travel with the group, and that's it, you know? Like, she she gets some banter. We don't learn that, you know, the Ferris story behind it. For, for those that don't know, a Ferris would be someone who was married to a blacksmith and then widowed, but allowed to operate the business on her own. Even if, like, generally speaking, you wouldn't have the same, like, scope of things that you were allowed to do and whatnot, you were still able to conduct the business. And they do actually historically represent that, but we find out that she has a husband, like, in one line, yeah, yeah, and it really feels like she got cut out of the movie. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that probably goes for a lot of the entourage. I think in terms of having agency, I think Chaucer's great and takes a lot of that heavy lifting feel that everyone else just exists because william exists kate does they're there because william is there which is right to an extent because they are the entourage but i'd have loved to have seen a little bit more about you know them interacting when will wasn't in the tent Mm -hmm. that you know they 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 had agency they were talking to each other they were planning things which wasn't really happening aside from maybe on the tilt yard when they were jousting so yeah and, and kate I think when we met Kate, I thought, oh, this is going to be a really interesting character. You know, we're going in a, a good direction here. And yeah, the, we kind of, aside from teaching them to dance. Yep. Um, <laughs> Which, I, you know, like that could have worked. I, mm. I just think she needed a little bit more. And, you know, at the film already being two hours and 12 minutes, like, how do you do that? Things need to be cut in order to serve the entourage a little bit i don't know where i would actually want to make those cuts but i definitely feel like the entourage needs a little bit better service chaucer is served very well interestingly chaucer actually had more scenes cut because he had a wife in the original script and they actually filmed scenes with that character but ultimately cut her completely so it's very strange to me that the plan was always to give chaucer more business And not the rest of the cast. Like, Roland, I I think, actually comes through well enough because he is an older brother type character to Will. And I I think that comes through, even if he doesn't necessarily have a journey, he's serving his role pretty well. And Watt, to me, is similar in that Watt is just a comic relief character. And, you know, Alan Tudyk plays that very well. So, like, There's that. And then the other specific grievance that I have with this film is the fight that develops between Will and Jocelyn. I do think it is a necessary like thing 
to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. I think it sets up really well some of the moments of tension, especially tension for the entourage itself, because one of their big subplots is they place a big bet on Will in the competition where he promises Jocelyn that he will lose to prove his love to her. Before that, Will and Jocelyn get in a fight yeah. and it comes out of nowhere and it's weird. And I feel like they could have justified it better with just a few line changes. You know, the fight starts because Will is upset that he didn't get to face Adamar because Adamar withdrew and therefore he didn't get to prove himself in the way that he wants. So he's clearly like emotionally upset after this fight, but he's just mean to Jocelyn for no reason. (laughs) And also like in this fight, she shows that she does not value any of the things that he values. It's like a fight that's like, oh, well, I guess these characters aren't really well suited for each other. Yeah. So I think that scene just needs to be rewritten. Yeah, I thought that. It did. It came out of nowhere and there's that conversation about, well, rather be a flower than a someone with a horse and a stick. And you just, yeah, just like yelling at her. And it felt like there was something cut before that. Uh, just, it, it, yeah. it, it, was, it was quite jarring. But as you say, you have to have something there some tension to kind of bring them back together it's just probably a bit too rushed yeah you'd need it i think adamar could have gotten under will's skin with a line you know saying you haven't beaten me you've proven nothing like like you know you just need the smallest little thing to set Mm. those characters up emotionally to have that confrontation And it wasn't there, and I feel like it could have been there without adding more time to the film. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny because it's weird. I find they put too much elements in about classes, nobles versus commoners, and at the same time, they don't address it. So this scene between Jocelyn and William, I sort of took it like, okay, it's kind of a reckoning of Jocelyn, she's nice and all but she's a noble she's got this easy life and she's like mm. oh yeah you know but what does it matter a flower or winning a lot of money i could have seen that scene as william breaking in the sense of well no no because life is hard because when you're a commoner it sucks and so on yeah 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 that would have been much better yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. That should have been the note. You fixed it. You fixed it. Now tell them. Um, <laughs> if that- <laughs> but that's the thing. My brain fixed it because I realized now, I think this movie, so there's a channel service. I don't know if there were equivalent things in the UK. So before streaming, we had those, I guess, paid cable channels, which would show movies repeatedly. Mm-hmm. So when I saw A Night's Tale, I actually saw segments of it on one of those channels separately. So I probably saw like 90% of the movie, but not in a sequence. And I think in my memories, I rebuilt a lot of things. And in that thing, on top of Jeff making a big speech, encouraging the, the Londoners to save William, I also included a subplot with Kate, <laughs> shipping Kate and William. Because in my head, there was a subplot in which Kate actually fell in love with William and William sort of too. And at some point he had to decide whether he was going with the noble lady or with the commoner on top of, you know, facing the danger of jousting. Uh And I was surprised it was not in the movie because 
I wasn't really convinced it was there. And looking at the movie, not only I was surprised it was not there, but I was like, that could fit in there. If you have time, you remove a bit of Adam or you could definitely have that and it makes it much more interesting, which is about, yeah, but uh, your relationship with Jocelyn, it's a lie. I know the real you. And yeah, Kate would be much better. I, I mean, ultimately for me, I can't stomach losing any Adamar because I think <laughs> Will's relationship with Adamar is one of the most important relationships in the movie. Maybe a little more important than... That's another shipping you want to happen. <laughs> I actually would love to see that movie too, where you lean a bit in the ship between Adamar and William. I mean... And you, you make it a bit more, you know... My pitch for a sequel to this movie is a little bit built on that because, you know... This movie could have gotten a sequel, but Heath Ledger did not want to return. And I think as much as it disappoints me, it was the right move for his career because he was afraid if he did a sequel to this movie, it would kind of typecast him in certain roles. And as we all know, Heath Ledger was a more talented actor than, you know, being saddled with jousting sports movies for his entire career. Uh That long and storied (laughs) genre. Which is not a wide market. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, I think, again, the chemistry of this cast is so good, they easily could have pulled off a sequel and it would have been really, really pleasing. But, you know, Ledger didn't want to come back to do it. And, you know, now, years later... We don't have Heath Ledger to reprise a role in this, but I do still think there is room for a sequel. If you did something focusing on Will's daughter trying to prove that women should be allowed to compete in jousting, then you can kind of put the band back together and cycle <laughs> through. And obviously, I think you need a child of Adamar's to face a child of Will's. And those two got to fall in love you know, around the sport of jousting. I'd just make it a son. Um, but then you don't have the plot of uh, of women should be jousting. No. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need a son. It's got to be a daughter. It has to be a daughter. And I honestly think it should be both of them are daughters. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, just go whole hog. Like, if you're going to be anachronistic, why not? Why not? Is this a movie you would recommend for tabletop RPG fans? And, and why? I'll let James answer first, because I've not quite decided. (laughs) Sure. So here's the thing that I I think is important about this movie. This is one of the movies that I point to as a good role-playing movie because the ensemble cast is strongly defined. Even if they don't have enough to do in their roles, if there's not enough, like, on screen for them, you know, you look at Chaucer and go, oh, that's a bard right there. And he is doing cool bard stuff. You get to see throughout the movie, like there are moments me going, oh yeah, that is his, you know, performance role. That is his diplomacy role. He's forging right there. There are all these things. You can see how those roles go. You even get to see, you know, in the, in the crowd scene, when they're at the stocks, he tries to make an appeal. He goes, good people, listen to me, listen to me. And they don't like he fails that role. I think that is a neat thing to chart if you're a tabletop role-playing person, but I think this movie is especially good for game masters to pay attention to because of how well it uses the structure of sport and competition movies and gives you what is kind of a roadmap to nonviolent action scenes, you know, non-lethal conflict resolution 
which I think is pretty key in tabletop. A lot of like pretty much the only tool that people jump to in their tabletop role playing is violent fights. And, you know, a lot of them are violent fights that are pretty much like determined to end in death. I don't think those are really good stakes for everybody to use all the time in their fiction because, you know, fighting the boss is not much different than fighting like the monsters that come before the boss. If you're fighting a group of goblins and you're fighting like a lich and the stakes for both of those encounters is death, then it's kind of hard to establish that there's any real escalation there. In this film, you have a thing that you can set up a structure of roles around, a structure of competition. You're trying to roll well enough to break a lance on your opponent, and you get more points based on where on your opponent's body that lance breaks and whether or not it unhorses them. There is a way to create stakes and tension surrounding that doesn't necessarily need to end with one of the characters dying. And then, you know, in the last scene... Will gets very injured and suddenly he's riding without his armor and his life is on the line. It's a massive increase in stakes and it's really fun and interesting to watch. I I think if you can see how the relationship of rivalry evolves between those two characters, see how competition affects the stakes of different moments throughout the film, you can walk away with some really, really useful stuff to make your games feel much more dynamic. Yeah, you've sold me on it. Because I think initially I was thinking, well, yeah, as you say, you know, Chaucer does his stuff. The uh, the rest of the entourage, while, you know, they're generally good, they don't have a whole lot of agency to do. But I'm just thinking about when they first meet Kate Mm-hmm. And the line that William says to her, in essentially trying to get work for free. He's going around yep. trying to get work for free, um, <laughs> as you might want to do. For exposure. Exactly. I'm going to pay you for exposure. I'm going to pay you later. Uh, and, and then, <laughs> so, so he, he tries to rile, essentially just get a little bit of, um, I guess, rile Kate up a little bit by saying, well, to the other guys, what do they say that, that you can make horseshoes, but you, you know, you can't make armor for toffee or whatever it is. It was nothing to do with the fact that you're a woman. You're and, shite with armor. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so she immediately goes, well, show you. And then she ends up putting two Nike swooshes on the armor mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and making it even better, reinforcing it. It's very tabletop role playing, you know, the Nike swooshes. Yes. That's a sort of joke. People around the table playing D and D would make and say, "Oh yeah, and there's a symbol of on my magic boots." Yes, uh, described the the Nike uh, logo. Yeah, yeah. Um, one one thing I noted, and this is, I mean, this sorry, this is gonna come off as a bit of a plug, but there's a whole letter writing scene in there that works just like a game or a session of Quill, which is my solo letter writing game, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly the. There's a supplement I created for it called Love Letters, and the whole point of it is to basically come up with the best kind of words to win someone over. Mm-hmm. And uh, you kind of saw that work until William actually speaks to her. 
where he fails all of his roles uh, and he talks about horse flanks and her throat and <laughs> yeah you have a nice throat really bizarre but that's a, a really nice example of completely flubbing uh, a couple of roles there so yeah, I agree with you, James I was kind of on the fence but you've shown me the light I think also it's a good illustration of you know some role playing games they put a big focus on parties, group of characters being balanced to be as good as each, as they are each other. And I find in, in this movie, although there's definitely problems of agency between the characters, it shows that you can have a compelling story with an unbalanced group with a power level between them being different and having very different skill sets and very different purpose within the group. Yeah, it, this movie reminds me most of No Dice, No Masters slash The Belonging Outside Belonging or Powered by the Apocalypse games where, you know, not everybody is expected to be good at or excel in the same areas. What you're really trying to accomplish with your character is fulfilling different roles within a narrative. Like Watt's role as a character is is to always get angry and frustrated at the people around him because it is kind of funny to watch him sort of impotently flail at the world. Scrappy-doo. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. And like, if you want to play that character, that's great too. And so the mechanics of whatever role-playing game is behind this should be mechanics that help you get into those situations where your character can shine and contribute to the group but maybe, you know, not necessarily always be the one or ever be the one on the horse with the lance winning the points. I compare the group dynamic of this movie to The Mummy a lot, where Mm. The Mummy, you know, that's another like action oriented film where really only one of the characters is cut out to be an action hero. The other is like a librarian and like kind of a sneaky jerk Um, (laughs) and like. You know, then you've got Brennan Fraser really shouldering the weight of most of that action. Um, <laughs> that movie still works, and it's still a movie that I'd say is one of the best role-playing game movies out there. The thing that you can gain from ensemble casts like this is looking at the different niches a person can fulfill within a story to make that story good and fun that aren't necessarily in the roles that we think of as traditionally heroic roles or roles that traditionally contribute to the success of a battle. That's actually a good segue in the, the next question, which tabletop role-playing game would be great to adapt this movie into. And I'm going to go back to your idea of a sequel, James, mm-hmm. except me, I'd prefer to see a reboot. Sadly, we could not have the reboot with the same actors, but I could really see a game of Starcrossed mm. involving as the character Adamar yeah. and William... <laughs> And all the tension between the two of them is a bit more than just competition. It's like, mm, I hate you so much. Ooh, I hate you. You look so good in that tiny little armor. I yeah, I I agree. Um, I I think this could be a wonderful, wonderful star-crossed scenario. And they meet again at different uh, justing competitions. It's like you again. Oh no, I need to go to war, but I'll be back. I've been keeping tabs on you while I was at was. I've heard that you were good on tournament and with the ladies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. That that is a very good that rules. 
Also, I could do a Descended from the Queen game about this, where we remove the character of Will as a playable character entirely, and instead you are playing the companions around someone pretending to be a knight, or, you know, maybe even just a regular competing knight, and, you know, the same sort of thing, asking questions developing your relationship to that character and that character's relationship to the world all to answer a central question. And that might be, you know, do you stand by this person as, as they are arrested or taken away or, you know, what have you? I I think that could be interesting though. If you wanted to immerse yourself in the universe of jousting competitions and groups of struggling people, like trying to, move from competition to competition and make their way in the world. I would absolutely do this as a no dice, no masters belonging outside belonging game. Cool. Yeah. In the same vein of playing an entourage, I was thinking of Jason Peters palanquin also in which you played the bearers who follow around the heir of a kingdom. So the heir is played by a player, but it's a sort of asymmetric structure and the other players play the bearers who are the entourage. And they each represent a different domain. And But apparently the mechanic is all about you want the air of incoming dangers based on your domain. And your domain can be warfare, society, sorcery, religion, nature, crime. And each player has a different one. And you can protect the, the air using your domain. But the way it works is that by showing you using your domain through the air, there are big chances that you can scare off the air as well. So that this kind of, yeah, this asymmetric relationship of playing the people surrounding another character who's also played by a player and see uh, and see where it leads you to. <laughs> I kind of put down Pendragon <laughs> um, as potentially a, a fairly obvious one. But tell me, is there a game with romance and then you do stuff with like jousting, which are perilous a bit? There, there is in the land. there is romance of the perilous land as well. But you know, I, I've already plugged one. I didn't want to go, but thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> no, no, keep, yeah, you gotta plug it. That's the whole point. Gotta. That's the whole point. It's the it's the British guy in me. So there's um, Good Society, Ooh. which is made for Jane Austen, and I think there's the Sense, Sensibility, and Swordsmanship, which is essentially about having a, a split personality one being kind of the noble and you're kind of going and doing your manners and the nobility and the things that probably are quite knightly and courtly and then you've got your other personality which is more the kind of the badass probably the knight so if, you th- if you're thinking about the beginning of the film where you know he is essentially going in as sir ector and he's you know not well is it throughout the whole film he's, he's obviously a different person so that could potentially work as i say i've never played it so i might be completely off base but it sounds no i i I have played it and i really think you're onto something oh okay cool i would just like balls i would take balls and i would replace that well maybe not replace them i I guess i'd add jousting competitions to it because you do still need the dance that happens afterwards so yeah like that is a really cool little universe to get cooked up. You still got the epistolary phase. Hmm. Yeah, and, and the one-on-one scenes. I think that works. I think it works really, really well. Oh, that's, that's where you got this epistolary phase because you're on the road and 
you got the episodic events of the different tournament, but then you yeah. you change the context and it's kind of self-contained until you, you go to the next one. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah, I'm already picturing just sitting down to a good society game, entering an <laughs> epistolary phase where I write a letter that is just all of my tournament victories to Amazing. my rival who's <laughs> in the front in France. <laughs> hmm. We had one in common in the suggestions, uh, Scott, uh, Legend yeah. of the Five Rings. Oh! Yeah, well, again, I haven't had a, a whole lot of exposure. I've played it a couple of times, but it felt to me that because of the structure as in you have your duels and you have quite nice social conflicts that it seems to slot in quite well there. Mm. That's my experience of Legend of the Five Rings. The introduction adventure, the first one I had playing the game was a topaz tournament, trying to become a full-fledged uh, samurai, and it's it's contests like that. And uh, that's, yeah, you mentioned duels. Legend of the Five Rings is one of those few games in which you have those kinds of conflict, physical conflict fights, but in which it's clearly stated that you're not going to kill each other. So... So it's all about the aftermath, the relationship you have with the person you defeated and their own entourage and so on. And also, you know, for the asymmetric side of being people around another person, that's my experience also playing the Ryoko Wari campaign. One player was playing the Jade Magistrate and was much more powerful than we were. But at the same time, we were the one doing things that person could not do because of their status. And there was also a situation in which, like in this movie, the player playing the magistrate had to make public speeches, but that player was maybe not that good at that. He was better at with investigative stuff. So suddenly you need to prop up the person representing you with uh, preparation and giving them advice or supporting them discreetly during the action with their public speech and so on or for a duel even maybe the magistrate has to fight a duel or maybe he can take a champion or maybe he cannot but you got these sort of very interesting situations which are created by the society we, we live in a society the the hierarchy the status all these things which can look cumbersome from the outside, when you look at the, the, the constraints, uh, when you play Legends of the Five Rings, but actually it creates yeah, that's good point. very specific situations which you need to to engage with. Mm -hmm. Well, we brought up a couple already as part of discussing the games and the movie, but are there themes or ideas which we have not discussed yet that you find would be cool to bring in any tabletop role-playing game, no matter the system or, or, or the setting that you see in this movie? You know, I always love people swinging for the fences and how they describe their outfits. So, <laughs> hey, use this movie as inspiration for really dressing up your universe. I think there's an instinct with a lot of role-playing to go very generic fantasy in the aesthetics for, for what's happening because you are mostly invested in the action or the magic or whatnot. You can add more personality to your game and universe by having fun with other aesthetic elements. You know, create your own feeling for the story that you're writing. Yeah. 
Yeah, go for the vibe, even with a historic setting, mm-hmm. or if it's a medieval, classic medieval fantasy setting, don't hesitate to take pop music, rock music, or music from a, a movie which is maybe more science fiction. Take Jason Bourne music <laughs> to match an action scene, even if it's not technological, even if it doesn't fit, because it does fit the vibe of the scene, the energy you want for that scene. Mm, yeah i also think going back to the kind of the armory scenes i think there's especially when you're playing a fantasy role-playing game you tend to have a city where you'll have one blacksmith and one armorer whereas here we can see that there's loads of them of course that they're there for the fight so just bringing in some i don't know some extra structural elements that you could find from Something like this, you know, if you wanted to bring a sporting element into your game, I think this is a good it's a good film to look at, you know, how how a joust is done. You know, even if it's not completely accurate, it's obviously designed to be entertaining and to be thrilling, so it probably makes sense to do some of the techniques and some of the structures that they've put in place for this. But I also think that Although you can't really apply this to every game, I do think this works as a solo game. Because if we're talking about a the kind of that one main character of, of William and we put his entourage, either a solo game or a GMless game where you're rotating, basically playing as the main character, and then every other player being the blockers that get in the way and throwing in the challenges. I think that could work quite well because then you get to focus on that one specific character and still have still have an entourage in, in other players. But I, I feel there's, there's quite a nice, in terms of game design, I think there's quite a lot you could potentially get from it in terms of how, how would you emulate this? Because while I was watching this, mm-hmm. how would you emulate this? If I was creating a game from the ground up, what would that look like? Would there be rotating GMs? Would it be a solo game? Who kind of has, you know, puts those challenges in the way? So I think certainly for a game designer, it offers some interesting elements. Yeah, it's something which is not explored that often. You know, sporting events. I mean, sporting events you do have. Yeah, it's somewhat common to have one. But really, uh, the idea of a, a season of games and people running into each other again and again, that's very appealing. And it's, yeah, it, it's weird that's not something which is more explored in tabletop role-playing games. Yeah, yeah. Be it jousting or any other sport. Win- really. winning, having um, mechanics to win crowds over and, and, and things like that and to enable you to get a a boost to whatever you're doing there's there's probably something nice in in that in that structure yeah moving from competition to competition like the way is it's implied the world of jousting works in these in this film is really really fun and again Mm. you know it adds a different kind of stakes than the normally gets investigated at the role-playing table i think that is something that people should absolutely try and steal for their games there's a Cobra Space Adventure role-playing game. I don't think it, it was super successful, but it would be nice to have the sort of post-apocalyptic science fiction 
baseball they have in Cobra or Alita Battle Angel. They got those championships of, I don't remember what it's called. It's kind of a rollerblade uh, thing. But yeah, this sort of setting sounds really, really cool. And uh, it's funny because video games to play sports, mm -hmm. you got a lot of them. Board games set in sport, there are a few. But yeah, tabletop roping game, uh, you could count them on uh, the, the finger of one hand, I think. Yeah, yeah. A classic thing, something much more common in role-playing games, uh, which I find, it can be a bit cringy, but <laughs> it's masquerading, you know, putting up a lie, but as a group. Yeah. Yeah, I love so that. pretending <laughs> as a group to be what you're not. I famously love that. <laughs> because that's pretty much what, what they do during the whole movie they oh yeah yeah of course William is is missing a, a lie someone from his entourage just say oh yeah 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 it's a local tradition or you, you don't know it's from Gelderland yeah mm -hmm. and, and this sort of thing that's a classic which I find uh, it's a classic for a reason in role playing games did you pull off some good ones James uh, on your show I mean, the plot of Campaign Skyjacks is that they're on a pirate ship and the captain is dead and all of the main characters of the show are using necromancy and lying to the crew pretending that he is still alive uh, so that the ship stays in the sky. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I truly, truly love that trope. <laughs> Night's Tale could have been a, yes! a different tale if... Oh no, Sir Hector is dead. Uh, he just have one, one to win, and and then we good. And like, I could take his place, or or we could use necromancy on it. We can at Bernie's nice tail. That would be great. Mm -hmm. Just flopping on the back of the uh, of the horse. <laughs> well, the other way around, otherwise, regarding the the masquerade uh, thing, is. Uh, have you ever had a game in which a powerful NPC showed up under disguise, pretending to be someone uh, different and much less powerful? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that that also definitely happened on, on Skyjacks. They met an important NPC for the first time while she was in disguise. Scott, did you pull anything like that on a game? Probably. Sounds like something I would do, but I can't think... For the life of me, when probably back in the annals of history, but yeah, that's always fun, right? You know, revealing this is the uh, the bad guy, the Scarlet Pimpernel. Is there any other themes or idea from the movie that you would borrow for a game? You know what? The dance scene. We don't make enough room in role playing games for celebration. You know, I, I think a lot of the focus in gaming happens to revolve around conflict and strife it is nice to have downtime wherever you can create it to add a dynamic feel to the things that you're doing at the table so leaving a little bit of room for revelry for your party i i think is good and you know a big dance is a really fun way to kind of explore that yet yeah, the letter writing scene was kind of a downtime scene also which works very well I mean, and there is a game that is a perfectly designed for it already. Imagine. There is one, yeah. People should go purchase it. <laughs> but no, I thought it was interesting as a wet for exposition about... Because we were saying we don't know that much about all those characters, but that's a very tender moment when we find out 
intimate details about each of them, which it's a surprising but very interesting time. Yeah, great for character development. Mm-hmm. Um, and great for the, you know those extra stories that you can get from uh, from the table. I mean, you look at that scene where they're doing the dance, and you know Williams essentially just improvising, and that is a re- that's actually a really nice scene. And you know you see that if you see that at the table, I think that's going to be something that people are going to kind of come back to and think, oh, do you remember when we you know tried to make the Macarena in the 14th century? <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, well, I think we we all tired uh, because of uh, our individual circumstances. <laughs> so uh, I think I'm going to adjourn the class. Thanks, classroom, for your participation uh, today. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Film Studies. You can find the released, that's me, and the RPG Academy, of which I'm a faculty member, on Twitter, at the RPG Academy or at Rollispod. There will be links to all of that in the description of the episode and all the games that we have mentioned, so including Quill, which you should play within whatever campaign you're playing right now. You should have a Quill scene in there. And you can find our shows on uh, on the, any podcaster of your choice. And also, uh, both the RPG Academy and myself individually, we have Patreons because we do all of this because of our love for the hobby, but we do have expenses. Uh, so any support that you can give us there is much welcome and help us produce even more content even faster. So that was for uh, my own personal plug, uh, the plug of Kalum. But now it's time for the plug of my guests. Scott, could you remind us what you do and uh, where can people find you when you wish to be found? Cool, yeah, of course. So yeah, I'm a Trollish Delver on Twitter. And I'm on the blog trollishdelver.com, and you can find me on DriveThroughRPG and itch.io if you search for Trollish Delver on there, where you can find games like the aforementioned Quill, English Eerie, a bunch of other stuff I've put up there. Uh, and you can also get Romance of the Perilous Land from Osprey Games and any good role playing game stockist. <laughs> James, where can you be found? Are you present online in any way? <laughs> I am. You can find all of my podcasts over at uh, oneshotpodcast.com or just go to your favorite podcast app and search for James D'Amato and uh, my show should pop up. You can also find my books, the Ultimate RPG Guide series, uh, wherever books are sold. Uh, I'm published through Adams Media, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster they have distribution everywhere. So if your bookstore doesn't have it in stock, you can always ask them and uh, they should be able to get it pretty easily. If you want to find me and just talk to me about A Knight's Tale or role-playing games or anything like that, the best place is on Twitter where I am at OneShotRPG. Amazing. I'm sure the next Ultimate RPG Guide will be about sports events. Well, it is the Ultimate World Building Guide, so. You know, a little bit. I, I think I did actually cut the exercise where I helped you develop your own competition for your fantasy world, but there is plenty of other good information in there, and uh, I did just get the foreword from my, my friend Patrick Rothfuss, so there's some good stuff in that book, so pick it up on May 25th when it hits shelves. Awesome. 
Amazing, great. Uh, well, thanks again, listeners, for listening and uh, all the way to here. And uh, yeah, see you soon. Uh, our next episode might be... We got uh, several in preparation. We got one about Tank Girl. We got one about Hackers. And uh, much more coming your way uh, slowly but surely. So we hope you will be back for the next one. Uh, uh, always feel free to send us messages and reviews. We would love to hear about how you borrowed stuff from A Night's Tale yourself for your games. Thanks, bye. 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 <laughs>